Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. And we are going to spend time in a great number of verses this morning, verses 39 through the end of the chapter, which happens to be verse 80. So I'm just encouraging you to read along in your Bibles. Uh, I'm encouraging you to open up your digital Bibles if that's what you need to do and, uh, and jump on in there. Um, that, will be, uh, that will be the best uh, situation for you. There's just too many verses to try to cram into the screen and, and to go over that way. So last week as we began this journey through the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 38, we zeroed in on two questions uh, concerning the coming of John the Baptist and King Jesus. And the first question comes from Zacharias, right? That's John's father. And the second comes from Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you remember, the crucial difference between these two questions was the difference of the heart, okay? This, there was a heart issue in these two questions. On one hand, you have a heart that questions God, a heart that doesn't take God at his word, a heart that, a heart that allows uh, the unknown to affect how they see God himself. And then the second question would be asking God a question, which is, of course, uh, a heart of humility. So now, with that, we better understand, and we, we saw that in detail last week, so if you weren't here, please go and check that out uh, on the podcast. But um, we better understand that these issues come down to heart issues. These issues come down to faith, uh, and uh, humility versus pride and doubt, okay? Pride and doubt. Um, now, I, 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 ca- I couched all this in language of doubt because when you're concerned about something, when you're questioning something, you need to be able to be humble and go to God, okay? But that is a far cry from what we call doubt today. Doubt today is very much... Uh, uh, a different animal. It's often something that is met with a great deal of pride. So concerning doubt, we walked away with three very practical steps for how we should approach these, these questions or concerns in our faith. The first is that in our doubt, we need to be honest. How many of you know we need to be honest with our doubts, okay? We need to be honest with our doubts because there's no sense in hiding them. God knows your heart, doesn't he? He already already knows what's going on. Most of the time we hide our doubts because we're actually afraid of people, right? We have some fear of man that goes on in our life and and we're uh, we're afraid they're going to think we're less than or something like that. But but here's a a spoiler alert. We're all less than without Jesus, so it really doesn't matter the way people tend to look at us, right? And so, so when it comes to our doubts, we need to be honest. There's no sense in hiding it. God already knows. And the scripture seems to clearly indicate that God has a measure of grace. God has room for people who would say something like this. Uh, Father, uh, I believe you, but help me in my unbelief. I, I believe you. But help me in my unbelief. There is, there is room for that because what marks that person's heart is humility. 
This is really important. And all of us have found ourselves in this place before. So the first thing is to be honest. The second thing is that we need to, uh, we need to seek uh, God for an actual answer. We need to seek to find an actual answer. Contrary to popular belief, seeking to seek is not noble. Okay? Uh, just being open-minded is not good. Right? I love the statement I heard a long time ago, which says, be careful you're not so open-minded your brains fall out. Uh, right? So, so we, we tend to glory in people being open-minded. We say that's the most noble thing. No, the most noble thing is the person who seeks to find an actual answer. Right? And so we want to find an actual answer. Lastly, uh, we, we saw point three was that we need to accept God's answer when we do receive it. How many of you know that? We need to accept God's answer when we, when we receive it. And you can mark my words, if you will ask, seek, and knock, you will receive an answer. God has given us that promise that we need to ask him, we need to seek him, we need to knock until that door is open, but he will give us an answer. You see, it's that final step of taking God at his word. It's that final step of walking by faith that Zacharias struggled with. That's that final step that we often struggle with. But it is what Mary did. If you read the story, it's what Mary did exceedingly well. Okay. So Mary's journey with God was that she heard his word. She didn't understand how it was going to necessarily play out, but she trusted it and said, okay, I'm, I'm willing to go down that path. That's what we need to do. Now, with that lesson in the bag, that lesson kind of in our, in our hearts as a foundation, we're going to turn our attention this morning to verses 39 through 80 to observe uh, the anticipation of many, because John the Baptist and King Jesus were the anticipation not just of uh, Ezekiel and not or, uh, or of uh, Zacharias, not just Zacharias and Ezekiel for that matter, but anyway, not just Zacharias and not just Mary and not just Joseph and uh, and Elizabeth, but also the many people were looking for these two. So, so we're going to look at for anticipation, but we're also going to learn a few things about salvation along the way, and in particular, we're going to discuss or going to learn that. Uh, the scripture indicates salvation to be a process. So the scripture teaches us that salvation is actually an unfolding process. That there are actually three tenses of salvation that we see in the scriptures. There is a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense of salvation. So if you're a note taker, I just want you to write these down. These are examples of the tenses of salvation. I'll, I'll speak to them briefly, and then we'll come back to that in greater detail at the end. The first one would be the past tense of salvation. We read something like this in Romans 8, verse 24. Romans 8, 24 says this, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? Notice where salvation is. For these people, it's past tense. We have been saved. It, it is to be read as good and done. In this context, okay? But even in the very same verse, salvation is viewed as a future tense. Isn't that amazing? It says, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. 
So there's a hope that we don't see yet. There's a thing that we're waiting for. Ah, future tense of salvation. For who hopes for what he already sees? So, so we have both of those, really, in uh, Romans 8.24. Then we move to a present tense of salvation. We see this very clearly uh, in many places. But in uh, Philippians 2.12 is the one that I want to draw your attention to. Philippians 2.12 says this, So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, what do you mean, Nathan? Well, working out your salvation now would be a present tense salvation. So you should be working out that salvation. Now, Nathan, what does that mean? Do you mean that I'm adding to something that Jesus is doing? No, not at not any way, in any way, shape, or form. What I am suggesting, though, that as you work out your salvation, you are walking in it. You are walking in what God has done for you and is doing in you and will do to you. Okay? So again, future tense. Really interesting ideas, right? Finally, we have the future tense of salvation. And this one's going to fit really well uh, with our lesson today in the rest of Luke chapter 1, and that's found in Romans 13, 11. Paul says this to the Romans, and Romans chapter 13, mind you, is one of the most powerful chapters for you to spend time studying when you want to know what your relationship is with the government, okay? I know, positive messages for, for uh, the, the world we live in today that is hyper-politicized. But Romans 13 is all about how we should relate to the governing officials. Um, and so here's what Paul says. Do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. It's nearer to us? I mean, I thought we already had it. Yes, this is the future tense of salvation. Salvation is nearer to us now than we had ever believed. And what we're going to see about salvation in that future tense is that God came to save us from a lot of things. Not just sin and death, but we forget that too. We often forget that he did come to save us from sin and death. We live in our sins still in this day, in this world, because we think, well, we're just humans. We're never going to get any better. That's simply not what the Bible says. The Bible actually says he saved us from sin and death and that he has then given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, which is the opposite of sin. So, so we need to look at all of this together, uh, past, present, and future tenses of salvation. And again, and we're going to get into all of this as we go through the message. But the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to look at Mary's visit to Elizabeth in verses 39 through 45. Now, you'll notice this. Every time that I start by reading a passage of Scripture, I, I obviously didn't do it in those previous ones, but every time that I start a sermon by reading a passage of Scripture, I often say, these are the words of God. And there's a reason for that. Number one, I've had that modeled for me, and I appreciate that model. It's a very powerful, important model. But the reason why I do that is to keep it as a reminder, not only for you, whether you realize I'm doing this or not, and for myself, that the reminder is that all of God's God's word is inspired by God. It is all God's word. Yes, these are the words of Luke, right? He wrote this down, but it's inspired, the inspired words of God. These are the words of God. And I want you guys to really catch on to that and believe that with all of your heart because that's what we read in the Bible. So verses 39 through 45, these are the words of God. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city 
of Judah, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. That would be John the Baptist. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me, how has it happened to me, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, that the mother of my Lord, you Mary, would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Now, I enjoy the details of Scripture deeply. I'm not, I'm not a heavy detail guy in everybody's stories in life because sometimes we just need to get to the point, or at least that's my personality. But when it comes to uh, the Scripture, what I love about the details is it helps us to reconstruct the story. And it helps us to reconstruct the story, I believe, in, uh, in detail. Okay, And so when we look back at verse 15 of chapter 1, for example, uh, we see Zacharias was in the temple and the angel told him something uh, about John. He said that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Isn't that a pretty intriguing picture? He's going to be filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb. Okay, that's a very interesting thing. So uh, the other night, Tuesday night, we get together every week for our elders group, and we sit and we discuss the scriptures, we study them together. And my wife, Sarah, pointed out this very interesting thing in, in how she reads it. She said, she said verse 44 seems to indicate uh, that this filling of John with the Holy Spirit actually happens when Mary greets Elizabeth. Right? Because what happens when Mary greets Elizabeth? John jumps in her womb. Okay? And at the same time, Mary is, or Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice what it said in verse 15. It said that John would be filled in his mother's womb. It didn't say when. It didn't say from absolute point zero, you know, this moment. Right? But the idea here is, as Sarah would say, she said, it seems like that's when that happened. Now, verse 41 seems to confirm that same idea. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. John leaps in her womb. And all of this spiritually coincides with the greater story of redemptive history. I know that this sounds really trivial to you, but it's fun to me to see those details. Here's what we see in redemptive history. Jesus comes first. There's a gospel message. There's, a, there's tidings of good news and great joy, right? That's what Mary came to deliver to Elizabeth. And once that comes and that message is received with gladness, what is the promise according to Scripture? We would be filled with the Spirit of God. That we would be filled with, with his spirit. This is, this is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. So I don't know if you see it that way. I don't know if that's intriguing to you. But it's an interesting way of looking at that. So we see that John is filled with the Holy Spirit nonetheless. We see that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see Mary bringing this great news. In verse 42, 43, and 45, if I just call a quick time out, I would say this. Whatever this good news is, it was so much better than I'm having a baby. Okay? <laughs> it's so much better than I'm having a baby. Who else here announced by your announcement that you were having a baby filled somebody else with the Holy Spirit? Yeah, you didn't. Okay? So, <laughs> but it's an amazing idea. So something big is happening here. Then verse 42, 43, and 45 indicate that Elizabeth had some understanding, although the text doesn't prove this out, that she had some understanding as to what was promised to Mary. 
Now, Zacharias has been in the temple. He heard about his son John, or what would be his son John. He didn't hear anything about Mary. Mary has heard about her cousin Elizabeth, but we don't read the other, the opposite of that in Scripture. But here's what, Mary, here's what Elizabeth seems to know about Mary. Without any indication of the story being told to her, she greets Mary with these words, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now this is far more than, hey, you're having a baby. Let's all go and celebrate. Let's have cake, right? It's blue. Okay, so that's, that's not what's happening here, okay? So what is going on here is that there's something unique about the fruit of that womb. We see this in the next piece that she says. Elizabeth says to Mary, she says, the mother of my Lord has come to me. The mother of my Lord? How are you connecting lordship all of a sudden? Well, she knows something about this baby that's being born. And she praises Mary for believing God he would fulfill what he had spoken to her. Now, there's no indication in her praise of Mary that she's trying to contrast Mary between her doubting husband. But she does praise Mary for trusting and believing whatever God said. And why I point that out is because that is commendable to this day. We are a people who what? Walk by faith. Amen? We are to walk by faith. It's back to our three issues on doubting. We need to be honest about our doubt. We need to seek to actually find an answer. And when we do find that answer from God, when we hear God speak or when we read God's words, we need to trust it and we need to walk in it. Amen? Okay, so we need to walk in that. And so this is something that is commendable at all times in the Scripture. We also see the express understanding of Jesus' lordship in Elizabeth's rejoicing. The anticipation of both Mary and Elizabeth begins here. They were anticipating a king. They were anticipating, along with any faithful Jews, they were anticipating a coming lord, a coming king. Now, I believe that this is worth noting, too, and I, I just I love this reality. Uh, Jesus is recognized as lord from his conception. How is it that the mother of my Lord would come to me? He was Lord from generations past, right? From eternity past. He has been Lord. He always will be Lord. This is just who our king is, okay? So that is a, an amazing observation in the scripture. So we have a lordship theme that's clearly established in, in Luke in the beginning messages to, uh, to Mary, okay, from Elizabeth, or this, this interchange there. In Luke 46, 1, 46 through 56, it shows us a little bit more of what is meant uh, by all of these images, what it means to Mary in particular. So if you listen closely to these verses, you're going to actually see the salvation theme entering the story, and it's very overt. It's not hard to see, okay? This section of Scripture in verses 46 through 56 are called the Magnificent, or Mary's Song by theologians. So here's what it says. These, again, are the words of God. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So look at the connection there. The Lord, right here it seems she's referring to God the Father. But she is saying, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. He's the one who has come to save me. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation, and I love this church, toward those who fear him. 
There's a strange qualifier inside of all of this. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart, because pride is a heart issue. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy And he spoke to our fathers, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And then this section of scripture concludes by saying that Mary stayed with her cousin for three months and then she returned home. Verses 46 through 50, if read in isolation, and again, here's here's 46 through 50. And Mary said, my soul exults in the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has, has regarded Uh, has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation to those who fear him. Verses 46 through 50, if read in isolation, might be interpreted as Mary just rejoicing that she's going to have a baby. This was a huge deal for a generational people. Okay, this ought to be a huge deal for us too. But we live in a postmodern world. We live in an enlightened state. We live in a very Western idea, and we don't think generationally when it comes to our families. We think with something, we think with the lens or through the lens of something that will satisfy us or fulfill us. And so what do we have? And listen, I'm not taking a shot at anybody. I'm simply revealing the story that you believe, whether you knew you were believing it or not. We grow up believing kids are for our joy, so we have 2.5 kids, right? That's the average. You can't have 0.5 of a kid. But anyway, sorry. so we have 2.5 kids. We have a dog. For most of us, we have pets that we call children until we can have children. They're not your children. Okay, so moving on. But the idea here, that makes people mad. But anyway, uh, we have children, and we're trying to fulfill some sort of aching in our heart, okay? Some sort of longing in our heart. But what we don't believe is the story that says God's faithful promise comes through generation after generation after generation of those who fear him and believe him. Amen? That's a a fascinating way to view life. And guess what? That's the way life was always viewed. But we view it very different. And so we got Fluffy as our heir, and, well, Fluffy's going to die before you do. Anyway, so, verse 46 through 50, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm not laughing, I'm actually coughing there, could be interpreted as Mary just rejoicing at the coming of a baby, but it is not, excuse me. So verse 51 through 56 directly connect who this baby is and what he, Jesus, is to do. What's more is that verses 54 and 55 actually help us to understand uh, Mary's song in its fullness. Questions like, what does it mean for God to help his servants are answered in all of Mary's Old Testament echoes. Likewise, these echoes explain many questions such as, well, what does this all have to do with God being the Savior? Savior from what? Saving who from what? All of those questions, like verse 47 would ask. Or uh, verse 48, look on the humble estate of his servant. Why is a baby helping solidify that God is looking on the humble estate of his servant. What does this mean? Because these people were looking for something bigger than just a baby. Amen? 
Why is it that all generations would would call Mary blessed? Is this just because the first time in history a virgin has a baby, the last time in history, and that's amazing? No, that is not what the point is here, okay? Mary is most likely not even thinking in those terms. She's thinking of something bigger. Why is God's mercy said to be given to those who fear him from generation to generation? All of this is answered in Mary's echoes. Why again does God scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, as verse 51 says? And lastly, why does he bring down mighty thrones? What what is this all about? If this is just about salvation, what's this about? Or what is it about exalting the humble or feeding the hungry with food? And why on earth, why on earth is Jesus sending away or God sending the rich away empty? Does he not like rich people? He has no problem with rich people. He does know that they have problems. That is, that they have something tearing at their heart, causing them to look in a different direction. Okay? So, in other words, Jesus is not the first socialist. I'm just throwing that out there to you, right? So, why is he sending the rich away empty? What does this all have to do with a child? Well, the answer is that it is no less than that this child is Lord and that he's come to bring salvation. But salvation is brought according to or to, to save people from many things, okay? He has come to save from many things. This is not just to save us from sin and death. Here are the two extremes we like to take. We like to take the extreme that everything in the Bible is just spiritual, and the problem is we become uh, somewhat pseudo-gnostics in this approach to life. Everything is spiritual, and God doesn't care about the physical. God deeply cares about the physical. How many of you know that? He deeply cares about your physical. That's why we call to him in prayer for food and for, and for healing and for health and for all of those things. Give us this day our daily bread. Why are we doing that? God doesn't care about the the flesh, just die. (laughs) No, God does care about all of those things. He cares deeply about all of those things. Salvation is more than spiritual things, okay? But salvation is no less than spiritual things, okay? So the other side is that Christianity or that our, our faith is just for something in this life, to make us live better lives, to be cool and, 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 and a little bit more uh, reasonable people to deal with inside of the world. Many megachurches fall into this pit, okay? Many megachurches fall into this pit because what happens is the message becomes just some sort of uh, constant repetitious preaching on morality, on moralism. And so what you do is just become a better person, okay? Well, why? That's true. We should become a better person. We should look more like Jesus, amen? But why would we do that? Because this is a covenant sign of a redeemed people, You can't be like Jesus was unless you are born again, as Jesus said, okay? It's just, it's a simple fact. You might put on a really good show. You might do some really cool things, but it's not going to be the same unless, of course, the scripture is fulfilled that says we must be born again. Instead, uh, this is a salvation from something far greater. It's a saving from mighty thrones, a saving from the pride of life, the saving from proud people. It's saving from even rich who would oppress others. But make no mistake, Jesus is also not just delivering a social justice message. There may be justice in the society, but it is not just that. 
These were all covenant promises, everything from mighty thrones being taken down to the proud being crushed to the rich oppressors being overthrown to salvation from sin and death. All of these were covenant promises that God had made to his people. And no matter what happened to this people, there was always to be a remnant and that remnant would always be saved. Isn't that cool? It's always going to be saved. The challenge comes when we fail to rightly identify the parties involved in this salvation story. What I mean is that it's easy for us to see mighty thrones as only referring to Rome, right? Or as to referring to just a spiritual kingdom, the spiritual kingdom of darkness which God is overthrowing. Sure, that's all true. But we also have to see what Mary would have seen. We have to see what John the Baptist's mom, Elizabeth, would have seen. We have to see what everybody would have seen. And that is that they would have also known that this included oppression from the Jewish elite who were not doing their job. Okay? Please understand this. It was Jesus who says in the New Testament that he can make children for Abraham out of rocks. And that was an indictment, and that indictment was not levied against Rome. That indictment was levied against Israel, who had been unfaithful to God. In other words, they had not accepted God as their rightful king, and they had rejected Jesus, uh, who was God incarnate. Mind you, this level of rebellion, like we see among the Pharisees, is all a repeat of history. We've seen this before. We've seen it in Jeremiah's day. We've seen it in Ezekiel's day. We see it throughout the ages. God's covenanted people are walking with him. They do well, and then they fall away. How many of you know that this story is just on repeat? It just happens over and over. And what Jesus has come to do, what Jesus will do, and uh, has done, is doing, and will ultimately do, past, present, and future, is he is going to put an end to that. He is going to redeem a people. He's going to sanctify a people. He's going to remake a people. And guess what? When that happens, we will be faithful to him in response. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing that God would do such a thing for us. So if you're a note taker, you can write down Isaiah chapter 41 verses 8 and 9 or Micah chapter 7 verse 20 or all of Psalm 98. I'll repeat those really quickly for you. Isaiah 41 verses 8 and 9. Micah chapter 7 verse 20 or all of Psalm 98. And when you do, if you study this, you're going to see the source of Mary's echoes. Psalm 98 in particular sounds a whole lot like Mary's song. It's quite amazing because she saw Jesus coming, the baby in her womb, as being the fulfillment of what the psalmist had spoken about. The point is that the saving work of the Lord is to save his people from the oppression that they are under, every oppression that they are under, all oppression. Whether it looks like Exodus in Egypt, captivity in Babylon, which, by the way, comes at the hands of disobedient people of God, or the evils of wicked kings in Israel, or oppressive Rome in their day, or whatever we're living through, evils and, and bad situations, God has come to set his people free from that. Remember what I shared with you of Romans 13 just a while ago, the future tense of salvation? God is saving us from the tyranny of governments of this world that do their job wrong, okay? Romans 13 tells us that we are to rest in the fact that God establishes every government, 
and he does. That's a part where God's word gives us an answer, and we have to actually believe it. I know we struggle with that, but here is the truth. Just because God establishes a government doesn't mean that government always obeys his way. Amen? We've seen this so many times throughout history, and what happens when they don't obey him? He removes their sovereignty from them. He did this with Nebuchadnezzar. This is not surprising, okay? And if they will repent, he will reestablish those things because government to God was meant to correct the wrongdoer. It's not meant to correct those who are doing well. But there's sometimes when we, we fall under the oppression of that tyranny. Well, guess what? God is saving us. Isn't that cool? It's a very cool thing. So when you're fretting over America's world, uh, you know, and where it's heading and all of those things, take the right steps that God has provided for you to take, right? What do I mean by that? Get out and actually vote. Quit complaining if you're not going to vote, right? But get out and vote. Do those kinds of things, okay? You need to read the Bible and find out what you know, what you need to be voting for and what you need to be voting against. But my point is, you need to trust God, you need to rest in that. But even if everything goes topsy-turvy, if, even if everything gets flipped upside down, remember, God's still in control, amen? He is, amen? Amen, Steph? Amen, okay. <laughs> I love randomly calling a person out. It's just a lot of fun. I usually save that for Dave McCarthy. Hi, Dave. Let me randomly call you out now. You doing good? You said you were going to stand the whole service. I see you didn't decide to go through with that. Okay, awesome, awesome. Well, let's go on. Let's go on. You can nap now. That's what you were doing before. So <laughs> the idea here is salvation from many things. At this point in Israel's history, they were both under foreign and spiritual rule as well as compromised Jewish leadership. Please don't miss that in the grand story of Scripture. Before we move on to the next section of Scripture, I want to point out that we do, what we do see here is all three tenses of salvation. Okay, We're seeing all of them. The first being the past tense of salvation, which is everything that God had promised. How many of you know that the promise of salvation came before the foundation of the world? Ephesians 1.4. Scripture tells us, uh, let's just turn there. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians 1.4. This is such an amazing verse, and it's something that you should highlight and remember at all times in your life. You should remember it as the words are actually written on the page instead of how people often quote it, but you should remember it nonetheless. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him. How are we chosen, church? In Christ Jesus, we are not chosen before the foundation of the world regardless of the instrument. We were chosen in the instrument. That is, all those who are in Christ Jesus were chosen before the foundation of the world. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Do you notice what the future is supposed to be? Holy and blameless before God. Not faithless. Not running every other direction but to God. Isn't that powerful? This is powerful. Ephesians 1.4 tells us such an amazing, amazing truth. So we have the past tense of salvation in that God made promises. You will be saved. He said it a long time ago, and we have come to that realization in the present. The present tense of salvation was that Jesus had showed up. 
Do you see that in the story? Jesus showed up. That's the present tense of salvation. All that I had promised you before in the past has now come to fruition in the present. And that he is remembering his mercy. That's what we see in the, in the text of Scripture. God is remembering his mercy. Whoa, that's powerful, don't you think? So God remembers his mercy. And finally, we see the future tense of salvation on the horizon of what Jesus is supposed to accomplish. And that is that he's going to lead his people from captivity into freedom and that into the promised land or promised new creation of God. These three tenses of salvation are important for us as Christians to always have in mind. Every bit of God's promises are said to be yes and amen in Christ. Amen? Amen. They're yes and amen in Christ. But don't forget the three tenses of salvation. The past tense of salvation was established long ago at the word of God. We've seen it in Ephesians 1.4. That's every promise that God has made. The present tense of salvation exists in the fact that God is with us now. And that God is doing stuff. Can I get a big amen for that? God, God is doing stuff, church. He is loving us. He is shaping us. He is molding us. Sometimes, sometimes we come into church and we hear the preacher go on and on and on. Maybe that's just me, but you hear the preacher go on and on and on about holiness and righteousness and living for God. And you walk away from church and you say, that's not very encouraging. But I want to remind you what encouragement is. It is to build courage into you. I'm not here to give you compliments. Okay, that's not what encouragement is anyway. Everybody wants the church to say, hey, you're good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. I don't know if everybody likes you. You might be a jerk face, okay? But here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. You've been given everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. You've been given what you need through the knowledge of Jesus and the promises that he has given, including the Holy Spirit. You've been given everything you need. So my, my hope is to encourage you in that. How does this connect with this? God's doing stuff. Who is sanctifying us, church? God is sanctifying us. Nathan is not sanctifying Nathan. I am so grateful for that, right? God is sanctifying us. Now, what do we need to do? Because don't, don't think for a second there's no responsibility on our part. The responsibility is be humble. The responsibility is fear the Lord. The responsibility is surrender. How many of you know that we resist God a lot? How many of you know that even as new covenant people we can resist the Holy Spirit? That's why the New Testament says stop grieving the Holy Spirit. Stop resisting him because we do this constantly, okay? But we are called to be growing. God is doing stuff. That is a present promise that is being fulfilled, okay? So we have the past tense. We have the present tense. We have everything we need. And lastly, the future tense of salvation is true for us as we look forward. Why? Because God promises us this. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, Nowhere did that give us a timetable. That's our big mistake in reading the Bible. And guess what is coming? A day when there's no more pain. A day when there's no more sickness, including bronchitis. A day when there's no more fear, no more tears, no more anxiety. When the church gets into a problem is when the church tries to read all the tenses of salvation into the present. It's got to fit right now. And if it doesn't fit right now, we're doing it wrong. No, you're reading it wrong. That's the problem. God has saved us. God is saving us. Amen. 
And God will save us. And what awaits us, church? Listen, Joel Osteen's actually right if there's no future tense of salvation. And, and that is painful for me to even utter those words, okay? Joel Osteen would be right that you would be living your best life now if everything was done now. But you're not living your best life now. You're not. And some of the most faithful, God-fearing servants in this world have lived horrible, wretched, pitiful lives. Why? Not because they didn't have enough faith, but because they knew what was ahead of them. They looked forward to a glory to be revealed. I love that picture. Amen? That's the picture ahead of us. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.